0: The work of God in a blind man's life. That's the title I have chosen for this section. As we come into John chapter 9, it's funny how God works. I I always have my plans and then he slowly gets his way in my heart and mind. And I actually had 38 verses pasted into my notes here with every intention of covering them all. And it slowly worked its way down to three. So, those are the ones we'll study today. But I'd like to read through the passage down to verse 12 or so, just to get a feeling for the account that is here. And begin with verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That's why he's in this condition. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work, and as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he did something very unusual. He spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he almost takes you right back to the Garden of Eden, really. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, Sent." So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. some strange humor there with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes open? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay. What an answer they get back. A man called Jesus made clay. And anointed my eyes and said to me, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. They said, Where is he? He said, I do not know. What a bizarre account that is in this man's life. There is so much in here and so much that continues on from there. But I'll tell you, as we come into John chapter 9, we come to a refreshing turning point. We spent a lot of time in John 8 and... In John 8, you basically had the rejection of Jesus Christ. In John 9, you basically have people receiving Him. I like the words of Arthur Pink. He captured the differences so well. He said, In John 8, we behold Christ as the light, exposing the darkness. But in John 9, He communicates sight. In John 8, the light is despised and rejected. In John 9, He is received and worshipped. In John 8, the Jews are seen stooping down to pick the stones up, to throw at him. And in John 9, Christ is seen stooping down, making anointing clay. In John 8, Christ hides himself from the Jews. In John 9, he reveals himself to the blind beggar. In John 8, we have a company in whom the word has no place. In John 9, is one who responds promptly almost immediately to his word in John 8 Christ inside the temple is called a demoniac or demon-possessed person in John 9 outside the temple he is owned as Lord the central truth of John 8 is the light testing human responsibility in John 9 following that the central truth is God acting in sovereign grace after human responsibility has failed In every way, contrasting chapters, tremendous. One of the things that we're going to get into next time that I find so fascinating here is that Jesus, when he passed out of the temple court, when they were basically wanting to kill him, and he passed through their midst, he hid himself from them, whether he blinded their eyes like God did in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, In the case of the angels and the people there, or whether he made himself invisible, whatever he did to pass through the midst of an angry mob who was wanting to kill him. And in a case like that, you're rarely going to lose the person you're after. So he did something supernatural to hide himself from them. In this case, he supernaturally reveals himself to this man. But what is so intriguing to me is that when he says in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me. I must. That whole thought, I must. It's it's demonstrated when he leaves the temple area. These people were wanting to kill him. As soon as he gets outside, he goes right back to work. And he heals this man and on he goes with what God the Father had sent him to do in this life. And it's such a picture to me of... Though we face suffering and affliction and rejection and and obstacles in our Christian life, we should never allow that to derail us. But rather, like Paul the Apostle, they threw him out of the synagogue, he brushed himself off, and he literally, in one place in the book of Acts, went next door. Literally to the building next door and started having a Bible study to the Gentiles since the Jews threw him out. He just literally went next door and put up a new sign. You know, reaching the Jews for Christ. They reject him. He puts up a new sign. Reaching the Gentiles for Christ. He just goes on with his work. Well, Jesus does something like that here. And so here we have the Savior who meets suffering and the Savior who must work and the Savior who works miracles. This time I just want to talk about the Savior who meets the suffering in front of us because it's worth our time. As Jesus passed by... He saw a man who was blind from birth. Anything he's going to do to this individual is going to have to be a supernatural creative act. This is the man we meet in the Bible here in John. The first one, really, that has a condition that he was born with. Other people had sort of gotten sick and digressed into their condition... And it's interesting to point out as we get into this that in the Gospel of John, there's only about seven miracles. Really not that many. So John has handpicked them. He has handpicked them because these particular miracles not only show the wonderful miracle working hand of the great physician, but also great spiritual truth is drawn from these miracle pictures, as it were. John could have put all kinds of miracles in his Gospels, but he only chose the few that he did because they served the intention of his writing, which was to show Jesus Christ as God. He said, if I would have put everything in here, it would make enough books to fill all the libraries in the whole world. So he had to sort of condense it down to just what he wanted to say. But the disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? That's a big giveaway right there in their understanding. This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, points out that man and his natural reasoning has a real hard time looking at pain and affliction and suffering and disease in the world and reconciling that with the fact that there's a God. And he records the basic reasoning like this. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he'd be able to do whatever he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, the conclusion is that God either lacks goodness or power or both in other words why does he allow all this suffering to go on either he really isn't good or he really doesn't have the power to do anything about it though he is good or he's not good and he's not powerful that's human reasoning aside from the bible you could understand why that reasoning would be there and you have to admit that if the bible didn't really give us some light on these issues There would be such a a great void in our lives as Christians as to basically rob the Christian life of a tremendous amount of meaning and purpose because there is so much suffering. But the Bible does give us light, and I want to look at some of it. One thing that the Bible is very clear on is that we are going to suffer. We are going to suffer. It's part of being human Suffering is a part of life. For some of us, that's harder to accept than others, but it, it is. The sooner we accept it, the better. Let's face it, even a baby being born into this world brings pain to the mother that gives birth to it. So even in the beautiful act of giving life to a baby, bringing that baby in the world. I remember when my wife had our first child, Lori Beth. We just celebrated her 16th birthday. But I remember thinking back on that birth day that uh, we went to the hospital at 3 in the morning. And at 6 o'clock the next evening, about 5.30, the baby had not come. And finally, I got the doctor to come in. I said, there's something dreadfully wrong here. And she's been in labor now all these hours. And the doctor examined her and he said, we've got to get this woman in immediately for a c-section because this baby's not coming out and the the heart was beginning to have problems inside the baby and uh, it was it all became very complicated very fast in the meantime had been in a lot of pain for a long time and what they discovered was that her birth canal was blocked with her tailbone in a way that Lori beth was never coming out and you know in the old days both of them would have died but in, in the wonder of modern medicine, they rushed her in, and before I knew what was happening, they were holding my little daughter up. Not like this, my little daughter <laughs> up. <laughs> there she was crying away. And I thought, you know, this has all been a real painful experience here today. Meanwhile, I'm just watching. No, no pain for me, you know. Easy for me to say that. But even bringing a baby into the world, there's pain. Suffering is a part of life itself. And in the end, if you go to the other end of life, eventually we suffer and then we die physically. So we suffer. We all suffer. Really, Christian or not. In the book of Job in chapter 5, verse 6, Eliphaz is talking to Job and he said something very true. He said, For affliction does not come from the dust... Nor does trouble spring from the ground, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And that is a great truism of life. But for the Christian, though suffering is a part of life for everybody, for the Christian, it is to me wonderful to contemplate that suffering for the Christian listen to this, has its meaning literally assigned by God. Every single detail of our lives is under the careful scrutiny of an all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful and omnipresent everywhere at once God. Thus, any suffering coming into our lives is assigned meaning from heaven by God himself. That God that works all things together for the good. You see, for those that are called according to his purposes, that love him, and that good is to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. So for the non-Christian, suffering, pain, illness, catastrophe, tornadoes, hurricanes, natural disasters, whatever, that is a random suffering of time and chance, which happens to all men, but in the end very purposeless. I'm so encouraged as a Christian to know that the Christian suffers under a carefully controlled situation. Whether it be physical affliction, which many of us have them, or whether it be a natural disaster, which could hit any one of us, El Niño or Niña, whatever the case might be, or whatever... God carefully controls the situation. He marshals together His servants who are the holy angels, angels watching over me all the time, and that is set forth in tandem, or maybe even better, synergistically, with His sovereign will, and then His acts of providence, which is His Holy Spirit working in time, turning situations the way He wants them to go, so that the Christian suffers under the carefully controlled situation that is under the hand of God. And thus, our suffering is assigned meaning. There is no meaningless suffering in the Christian life. It is worth, I believe, thus asking God, when you're afflicted or you see someone else afflicted that you dearly love that is a believer... It's worth asking God, what's the purpose here? When you look at John chapter 9 verse 2, his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi. They came and they asked. It's a prayer, effectively. And we're going to talk more about that as we move along. But the the bottom line is that we are going to suffer and that God adds meaning to our suffering. It's distinct and it's all wrapped up in his perfect will for us. The next thing here I want to point out is that we are, and I think you would know this, we are prone to false assumptions about suffering. I mean, I opened the message with false assumptions that C.S. Lewis recorded. God doesn't love man or He does love man but He's not strong enough to do anything about it. That's a false assumption. Another false assumption is delivered to us here in verse 2 when the disciples ask Him saying, Rabbi, who sinned? You immediately see right there there's a false assumption. The immediate assumption is somebody sinned here. Somebody suffering, somebody sinned. In other words, anytime there's great suffering there's got to be great sin around somewhere somehow attached to it. But that was a false assumption. One uh, part of the false assumption here is that this blind man was suffering for the sin of another, or the sin of another life, actually. They say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? becomes more interesting the more you think about it. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, it's the idea of suffering for sin in another life. At the time of Jesus, it was a common pagan belief that you lived more than once. Reincarnation has become very popular and well-known in our day. The Hindu religion has made it certainly well-known throughout the world. But the whole idea here is that they're coming and they're saying, Rabbi... Did this man sin in another life? You know, sometimes we watch the disciples. They move all around with Jesus. They partake of all this great, detailed, first-hand teaching. We have the idea, if we would have walked up to them at any time and asked them any question on any spiritual issue, they'd say, sure, got it covered. You want to answer that, Peter, or or should I? You know, or maybe, Andrew, you ought to do that. You're really good on this one. But that they had all the answers. You know, there's reincarnation in Hinduism. Even the idea of the cults, uh, for example, Mormons believe that you exist before you come birth into this life. But even in those days, some sectors of Judaism believed that your soul existed before you were born into this life. And their question reflects that. Did this man sin that he was born blind? Did he sin before he was born in such a way that He's being punished by being born blind. The scriptures point out in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, after that to stand before God for judgment. That's the beginning and the end of really the answer to reincarnation. It's appointed to men to die once. You live once and you die once and then you stand once and for all before God. So the issues of eternity are settled in this life. This is it. And you don't exist before this life. You're born into this life with your first life. And that life is eternal. Whether you spend it in hell or whether you spend it in heaven. So they come and they ask a question that somehow indicates that he's suffering for the sin he committed in another life. A bad karma type thing. And then there is, it's sort of a two-pronged thing. There's also the idea, is he suffering for the sins of his parents in the fact that he was born blind? If you understand that in that day and age, immorality was accepted and rampant. In the the Greek and Roman world, it was just an accepted part of life. If you also realize that they did not have penicillin, they didn't have the drugs we have today, that along with the unbridled immorality, there was just endless... Endless venereal disease. So people would be born blind all the time just simply from venereal disease. You understand? The parents. So who sinned? Did his parents sin that he was born blind? So that could be just a practical question. Interestingly enough, Jesus answers in verse 3 that nobody sinned here. As it relates to this blindness, he answered and he said neither this man nor his parents sinned. You're all wrong in your assumption about this. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. He was born blind because God allowed him to be born that way for his glory. This is all bound up in the plan of God. In other words, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, Whatever else is going on here, don't miss this. God is involved in this. It isn't as simple as, did he sin or did they sin? There's much more here than that. You have to factor in an omniscient, sovereign God who allows suffering, even that a person would be born blind. And he has allowed this, Jesus said, for his glory. In other words for that particular point in time that Jesus would come and heal him. See, if you were standing there, if you were in the disciples wondering this, and, you know, usually they ask questions together before they brought the, the question to Jesus. They're, they're going around the circle. What do you think? Why was this guy born blind? Probably many of them knew him to have been there for years and years and years. Jesus effectively, if you would have been there, he, he would have said something like this in the context... I know it's really hard for you to understand this. But this man was allowed to be born blind that the work of God, God, would be revealed in him. I know even that's hard to understand. Watch this. Let me show you what I mean. So they're all, what's he going to do? And he stoops down and he spits on the ground. It's probably the first shocking thing. That the works of God. Watch this. Oh my. Jesus spit in public. Watch this. And he spits. And then he starts making a little clay in the ground. And then he rubs it on the guy's eyes. I like that one scene in the movie Jesus of Nazareth where they show that scene. And he's pressing with his thumbs. And the guy starts screaming, you're hurting my eyes. And you want to go, shut up. He's going to give him sight in those things. It's as if he says, I know this is hard for you to understand, so watch. And then he actually heals the man. And it's so shocking because he was born that way. There's no way they could say, well, this guy could see. And then uh, maybe he stimulated the nerves in his eyes after he'd been blind for a while. He has never seen. His eyes had something wrong with them. It's a creative act. So that the works of God, the glory of God, this man was born blind, so that at a point in time, through the touch of Jesus Christ and his miracle working power on his life, he could bring great glory to God in Jesus Christ. That the works of God could be revealed. And thus, here's a testimony you've got God in your midst doing another creative act from the clay that he made man from the very beginning. We're going to suffer. And we are all prone to false assumptions. Who sinned? Nobody in this case. There are... Here's a lesson to learn from this. There are no canned, cookie-cut answers to suffering. There's too many variables. There is the huge, huge, sovereign plan of God that has so many of our lives all networked together. So that... There are just too many issues that are not visible to us. And to just say someone's suffering, someone's sinned, that's just way off the mark. One extreme of all of this is the whole teaching of the Word of Faith cultic group that says that it's right for every believer to be healthy all the time. And that if you're not healthy and if you've prayed and claimed it and you're not healed it's your fault which simply dumps endless condemnation and needless guilt and confusion on the people that follow after those false prophets. But the Bible tells us clearly in First Peter four nineteen, it says therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God. So suffering often is according to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. In other words, God, you know what you're doing. I trust you. And you have allowed me to suffer. You have allowed this affliction. Here's a man born blind because God had a plan. Here's a man who suddenly is delivered and he can see because God had a plan. So we cannot say that every believer is going to be healthy. That's, that's nonsense. And I think you're aware of that. Neither can we say that suffering is always the direct result of sin. They said, who sinned? It's almost the picture that if somebody's suffering, then they're suffering because there's great sin there, and God struck them down because of it. That whole view of God is so far off, so far off. And it's a knee-jerk reaction thing. Man born blind, who sinned? When in all reality, nobody had sinned there. What it shows is an inappropriate view of God. It's a view of God you could call the whoops, bang perception. In other words, God is sitting up in heaven and he spends all of his time watching. Watching for someone to slip up. And if he's even not quite paying attention, but he hears oops over here. What was that? I heard an oops. And he turns and hears some oops, I slipped, I crossed over the line, I blew it. Then he responds immediately bang! If you blew it, then you deserve a physical affliction. I'll strike you blind. I'll give you back problems. You'll be in a car wreck, whatever. That whole perception of God is so far off. Whoops! Oh no! I'm going to get it now, you know. Bang! As if God and His angels are nothing but a team of sin sniffers and flesh finders up in heaven, you know. (laughs) This stern, merciless, unappeasable God just wanting to catch people sinning. Bang! I'll send a tornado to your city just to get you. Right. Right tornadoes happen because of weather patterns you know God is not up in heaven spending all his time looking for people to slip up so he can hit them with suffering and affliction the Bible says in 1st John 4 8 God is love it goes on to say in verse 9 of 1st John 4 in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him And that is what God is concerned with in our lives. Life in Christ. He that gave up his only son for our sin. The hardest thing of all. The most horrifying thing of all. Will he not freely through him now give us all things. Since we know him and love him and he's adopted us into his kingdom. There's another problem with this whole idea of misunderstanding God. I mean, I think that every one of us here that are Christians can testify. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you can testify of how many times you have sinned. How many times, whoops, and more than that, but there was no bang from heaven. You know why? Because God is patient, God is merciful. You know how ridiculous we can be in our sin. I remember one time before I was a Christian, just to give you an example. I had this old 54 Ford Fairlane. It was the first car I ever owned. It cost me $150, bald tires, uh, leaky transmission. had to put a quart of transmission fluid in it every day. You know that kind of a car, junk heap. And uh, then the battery died, and I remember, you know the one bolt that won't come off? You take all the bolts off, but that one, you get to it, and it's the last one, and it will not come off. I remember out there, I had my wrench out there, and I wanted to go surfing. I mean, this was critical. And I, I wanted to get that bolt off so I could change the battery, fire that thing up, and hit the beach. I could not get that thing off. And then, you know how it gets all stripped? <laughs> and the wrench is just spinning around it? I remember I was about, um, how old was I when I got that car? About 16 years old. I remember shaking my fist at the sky and cursing God. You know, like, don't even bring him up until your battery won't come out and the bolt's strip. But suddenly there is a God, and you want to curse him. Up until then, he's not a part of your life. You don't even believe in him. But now that you're so angry, blame it on him. Invent him, believe in him, and curse him. You know, and I remember that, cursing God. Then I remember I got in my car and I thought, Ah, I bet the waves are going to be bad now. You know, because he's going to judge me. Right. If he really wanted to judge me for cursing his name... He would have fried me on the spot and sent me into hell forever. So we want to talk about real fair judgment here. But you see, he didn't. I'm still here. I'm saved. He even saved me after all of that. So look at your own life. All the times when you have, whoops, there wasn't a bang. But rather, God was patient. God was merciful. God was understanding because he's not looking for every little sin to just wipe you out. He's looking to direct your life, to work in your life, to mold you and shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. So to walk up, look at a situation, say, who sinned here? It's a totally inappropriate view of God. And what that does, that view, is it turns us into inappropriate judges. So that we see our brother or sister in Christ, and suddenly great suffering hits their life. And we're standing back going like this, mm. Yeah, I thought they had a funny look in their eye the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lord, I I think you did the right thing. Yeah. And you're just trying to figure out what their sin really is, you know. And, and, And they're coming to you, they just want to share their burden. And you're not thinking about how to comfort and help. You're just thinking, yeah, you big sinner. Yeah, well, look at me. I'm not judged like this. God knows, and I walk with Him. You know, and all of a sudden, all of our sins are so minimized, we forget we have blown it, and He hasn't wiped us out. And we just become these weird, critical people judging each other instead of loving one another and trying to help one another. And we're just, you know, looking at each other with weird looks. Yep, there it is. I knew it. Yeah, funny look. I should have known. Yeah, I saw it there last week. There was no twinkle. It was gone. It was a forecast of this affliction that was coming. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, God help us all. There's probably more of them around here. I better spot them too, you know. And you just become this weird critic. That's all from a wrong view of God. What we need to do is when affliction hits, disease hits, crisis hits, natural disaster, lose everything, we ought to look at the situation and pray and say, God, how are you involved in this? I know you are. This person loves you. They walk with you. They adore you. Surely you're involved. Where is your sovereignty here? Because, you know, sometimes God is simply allowing the whole thing that he could be glorified in their life. We don't know what Paul's affliction was in the flesh. He speaks of his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. There's endless speculation. He had an eye problem. Many people pretty much can figure out he caught malaria on his way up over the Taurus Mountains into Galatia. And it plagued him the rest of his life. Could be the the evil men in the church of Corinth that were undermining all of the work he had poured into that church. Which I tend to think it was messengers of satan to buffet him but we don't know for sure we do know that it caused a lot of pain in his life the whole point when he prayed about it he said god why and god said because i want to be glorified in your life in your weakness i want to make a statement through you that is clear to everyone that here can be a person afflicted physically. Here can be a person afflicted with demonic people around him. Here can be a person that goes through all kinds of human suffering and yet joy and care for other human beings and clarity of teaching the word of God and soul save can happen in spite of all human weakness. I want people to know that in a man's weakness I'm made strong. He got an answer back. No, I'm not going to heal you. And yes, I will be glorified through you. So that was a situation for the glory of God. We need to look at it like that, I'll tell you to purify our hearts real quickly, and God will become bigger to us right away. We should pray about it rather than inventing some canned answer or reacting with a false assumption. So we're going to suffer. We are prone to false assumptions. There are no canned or cookie-cut answers to suffering, yours or your friend's. And the bottom line is that we are safe in God's plan for suffering in our lives. We are safe because of this carefully controlling of this situation because we belong to him. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. He is at least saying... At least you cannot rule out the work of an all-wise, all-powerful, sovereign God here. So, God uses suffering in a number of ways. And what I want to do now as we move toward the close of this message is to just identify the basic ways in which he does this. God uses suffering, yes, in the Christian life. And sometimes, you know what, it is because of sin. Sometimes it is because of sin. In Psalm 119, verse 67, the psalmist wrote, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now that I have been afflicted, now I keep your word. See, sometimes it is because of sin. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes. And so, suffering sometimes. So, when when you have something like this come upon your life, you have to just begin to pray to God about it. Don't just assume anything. First thing, always, examine your heart. Lord, are you trying to get my attention here? And then ask God to help you be honest. And, you know, if you know the Lord, He's fully able to communicate with you. You know what? You're right with me. And there's nothing really unusual. You're human. So, This is not for sin. And I venture to say if it is, you'll probably know right away anyhow. (laughs) And just be able to get honest with the Lord about it. But listen, when the flu comes around and you get it, and everybody else has it, you don't have to get all weird. Whoa, I know I'm in sin now. I always first ask, is there a bug going around? That's my first thing I do. I check. If I find out there is, call the doctor. Yes, there's this bug. Doctor, what are the symptoms? This and this and this and this. Well, I have that. Good chances I caught a bug going around. And that helps me go to the Lord and pray. Hey, if there's no bug anywhere, then, you know, you might really pray about, Lord, this seems unique. Is this just me? Am I beginning the bug? Will this become the Elisa Viejo flu instead of the Hong Kong? I mean, you know, just... <laughs> Got to check. So sometimes suffering is correction for sin in your life, but not always. I would say probably more often it's for construction in your life. Construction. God is wanting to build you up. God is wanting to draw out of your life that Christ-like character, which is certainly what he was doing in Paul's life, what I mentioned a few minutes ago. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Illustrated this in a wonderful way through the whole task of producing a statue. And he writes of the great artist, Benvenuto Cellini, he tells us in his autobiography how he felt as he stood before this huge block of marble they had brought to Florence for him to form into a great statue, just what his feelings were, and several chapters are devoted just to the design and the creation of this statue from this block of marble a work of art which when he was done stands in the city of Florence to this day between the rough-hewn rock of marble the block of marble and the finished statue he records were all the love and care of the artist and the infinite patience of releasing from the stone the vision of beauty which he saw before he began the work everybody else saw nothing but a block of stone. That great artist looked at that block of stone and saw an incredible work of beauty. And after a long period of chiseling and carving and hammering, eventually the shape, the form, the rough form began to show and finally the finished work of art. That's a great analogy of God's constructive work in our life. He chisels away at us by allowing suffering it's carefully monitored but he does it and Barnhouse made one great observation he said thus the Heavenly Father is at work in the life of everyone whom he has foreknown as believing in the Savior yet there is a difference between ourselves and a block of marble he said in that we have feelings and we can shrink back from the strokes with which the divine sculptor would cut away the marble so that the likeness of Christ might emerge in our lives. God looks into our lives. He sees this great, beautiful image that he's drawing out. The difference between us and stone is that the stone cannot resist the blows of the artist. But we can, and we often do. That's why when God is working in our lives and he allows... Suffering, disease, affliction, whatever, we need to just go to prayer. And the simplest thing is just turn the whole thing into a new level of prayer in your life. That was the case with Job. Job, um, the devil, came before God and he says, This guy only loves you because you give him all kinds of stuff. Take away his stuff and he'll curse you like anybody else that doesn't have a lot of stuff. Take away his health and he'll curse you like anybody else that's, you know, got a terminal disease. And what happens is Job loses his health. Job loses his possessions. Job loses his children. Job loses his servants and his animals and everything. He goes from being a super wealthy man to bankrupt overnight. In the end, though he sits in a pile of broken pottery just scraping the pus oozing from his swollen limbs cursing the day he was born not cursing God but just wishing he hadn't been born because the pain was so great in the end God answers him out of a whirlwind and gives him more revelation in about two minutes than he had in his whole life By the time you get to God talking to Job out of a whirlwind, you're thinking, You know what? This isn't so bad. If I could have God talk to me out of a whirlwind, I think I might be willing to go through this too. And then, after that, God gives him back everything and a whole lot more. What's the point of Job? The point is that when somebody is saved by the Lord, they love him because he's a loving God, not because of any stuff. You can take away everything and give the man a disease, even to the point of Job's. And he will still love God because God is a loving God. And because the relationship is the best thing you could ever have in this life. And the other thing is that saving faith isn't fragile. The devil blasted Job with everything short of killing him. When it was all over, he's still walking with God was worth it all God was tremendously glorified before all the holy angels the demons and everyone else Lazarus got sick and he died the sisters cried they mourned and went through great pain he went through great pain what was the purpose of that? was he in sin so God killed him? Oh, he was one of Jesus' best friends personal friends not ministry personal friends he died and Jesus heard about it said yeah I know he's sick didn't go do one thing about it. Then he died. They put him in the tomb. Then he's rotting in there in the heat. Body decomposing, becoming gooey. Gooey. Gooey into the bandages, you know. And Jesus comes after four days. Old King James is a classic. He says, open the thing I'll bring him out. And his sister says, by now he stinketh. Lord, he's getting gooey in there. Don't bring him out, Please. But I'll tell you, when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and he had to use his name because with that great, powerful voice, everybody would have come out of the tombs all over the world. But he says, Lazarus, he wanted to keep it specific. <laughs> we'll just have one for now. When he says, Lazarus, and he got up and he came out of that tomb and then just rejoined the team. I'm telling you, there was all kinds of glory that came to God and Christ every single day nothing to do with him being in sin, didn't even have anything to do with construction. So we pray through these matters, and those of us that know God well know that He is a God perfect and loving, He does all things well. We rest in the safety of His plan. You pray and you wait. There's a Norwegian theologian, some great writings on these things. His name's Ole Halsby. I love what he said on this. A prayer. Here's the prayer. Lord, if it will be to your glory, then heal suddenly. If it will glorify you more, Lord, then heal gradually. If it will glorify you even more, may your servant remain sick a while. And Lord, if it will glorify your name still more, take him to yourself in heaven. Well, that's it. There's a man praying about it giving all the room for the sovereignty of God, even if, God, you want to take me to heaven, I'll go. That's the attitude we can have, God wants us to have, to where we rest in the fact that we are upheld and undergirded by the everlasting arms of an all-loving God. I want to leave you with this account. Dr. Floyd Faust shared about this man who had great afflictions. Early in my ministry, I met a man named Worrell. He had been stricken with rheumatoid arthritis at the age of 15. When I met him 30 years later, he was totally paralyzed, except for one finger. One finger. He could barely speak, and he was now totally blind. But he had a string tied to that one mobile finger that could turn on a tape recorder. Blind, barely speak, can only move his finger. He had a string tied that could turn on a tape recorder. He authored books, and he led a happy and influential life paralyzed in his bed. This was possible... Because after initial prayers that brought no healing, years earlier, he accepted his lot graciously from God and said, Well, Lord, if this is the size plot in my life you've staked out for me, then let's you and me together show the world what we can grow on it. And down the path of humble acceptance, Worrell achieved a happier and more useful life within the limitations of very restricted circumstances than most people will ever manage. Paralyzed except one finger. From that position, confined to that bed, he wrote articles and published books, that went around the world, in agreement with God to show the world how much God could do in that kind of weakness physically in affliction and yet a great rest in the plan of God who is all loving and does all things well. Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? Give Jesus two options. Right out of their misconception, Jesus said, you're way off. And you don't understand the work of God. He's so much bigger than that. Let me show you. And the man became a great testimony for Jesus Christ. And those guys went up to another level in their understanding of a sovereign God who uses affliction for his glory. And may we do that this night. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your great love, your great power. Thank you, Lord, that you are both loving and powerful. Lord, beyond that, you are sovereign. May we learn to trust, Lord, in you and your great care and love for us and that ever and always you're seeking our highest good. Father, when affliction hits, tragedy strikes, disease, whatever, Lord, may we ask to be more restful in you and your great plan, to see, Father, you do above and beyond what we would have ever believed you can do through someone weak and afflicted as we are. And God, in the end, may much fruit come forth from our lives that bring great glory to you, God. We will give you, Lord, all the glory as we see you work within us and through us your great and mighty plan of love and redemption. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.